Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. It's good to have you with us this morning. Last week we finished our study on the book of Jude. We ended actually where we began, talking about eternal security. And last week in the chat room, I thought it was very interesting. Robert said, eternal security is what puts the good in good news. I like that. Amen. Good job, Robert. You know, the gospel wouldn't be that good news if we had to keep ourselves saved. All right, you're saved. Great. Now, just hang on. I don't think we any of us would do too well there. Well, every time you talk about eternal security, somebody brings up the question, what about Hebrews? What about Hebrews 6? What about Hebrews 10? Doesn't it teach that you can lose your salvation? No, it does not. All right. But it does appear that way. So we want to look at that this morning as kind of an appendix here on Jude to to answer the questions that people have about that. Now, let me remind you of the primary rule of hermeneutics is called what? You agree with that? The analogy of faith. All right. Which means... Scripture interprets Scripture, alright? You don't need to go outside, you just need to learn what the Scripture says. And what that means is that no part of Scripture can be interpreted in such a way to render it in conflict with what is clearly taught somewhere else in Scripture. That makes sense? God doesn't double talk, He doesn't you know, say this over here and change His mind and say that over there. So the verses we looked at last week can't be in conflict with what the writer of Hebrews teaches. But I'll admit, when you read Hebrews 6, when you read Hebrews 10, it sounds like he's warning them about the loss of salvation. But we know this can't be so. So let's look at Hebrews 6 and 10 and see if we can reconcile these chapters, these verses with the doctrine of eternal security. Now commentators agree that the issue in Hebrews is apostasy. That's the same issue we've been dealing with in Jude, all right? But what they don't agree on (laughs) is what apostasy is. And there are basically three views of apostasy. The first view is the Arminian view. They say apostasy is a believer losing their salvation and being damned. Now we know this isn't true because we saw last week that Yeshua has perfected forever those who have trusted in Him. All right? The second view is what I would call the lordship view. This view says that an apostate is someone who pretends to believe. So they don't view an apostate as a believer, never were a believer, they're just a pretend believer. The thing that's always kind of baffled me is why would you be concerned about a pretend believer falling away? And what would he fall away from? From he's pretending? Wouldn't that be a good thing? You know, it just, you know, they say that it's just an unbeliever who maybe acts like a believer for a little while. That wouldn't be hard to do in today's church, act like a believer, to show up at church once a week, you know? What these views have in common is that in both of them, apostates are damned. In one view, they lose their salvation, and the other view, they never had it. So in the Lordship view, the apostate's position never changed. He's always been under the judgment of God. Again, I, you know, what's he falling away from? And then the third view, which I'll call the free grace view, an apostate is a believer who turns their back on Christianity, whether theologically, whether morally. They're walking away from the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. They turn their back on the Lord and they come under discipline, chastisement. Now, for more on these views... If you really wanted these views here about apostasy and who holds what about apostasy, there's a message online called Biblical Theology in the Hebrew Study, and it would be good to, to look at that if you want more information on that. Now, the theme of the book of Hebrews is a call to hold fast the confession of our hope and not to fall away. Don't turn away from Yahweh is what he's trying to warn these Hebrew Christians about. And these warning passages in Hebrews, and there's five of them, throughout Hebrews, that are very severe warning passages. They've invoked a number of unusual interpretation. Some have unduly exaggerated the verses, and some have unduly minimized them. And I think there's a danger on both sides. 
There were some in the early church who concluded that Hebrews chapter 6 and 10 were referring to the fact that once an individual had come to faith in Christ and had been baptized, there was no longer any forgiveness for sins committed after baptism. How do you like that interpretation? Any of you, have any of you sinned since baptism? Let me ask this. Have any of you not sinned since baptism? Alright? I mean, what a crazy view. They have to have either a minimal view of sin, what sin is. They downgrade sin so they don't do it. Or they have this crazy high view of themselves and I never do anything like that. That's foolish. Pharisaical is what it is. I believe they clearly missed the meaning of the text. But you have to give them credit because at least they're trying to deal with sin. Although I don't know how seriously when you say you haven't done it. You know, well, let's begin chapter six by backing up into chapter five and set in context. All right. Chapter five, 11 through 14 says concerning him, it's referring to Christ. We have much to say, and it's hard to explain. In other words, I got a lot to tell you people, but I'm having a hard time doing it because you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have become to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. He's an infant. But solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. The writer here tells us that the Hebrew believers had become dull of hearing. And he calls them infants. Napios is the Greek word here. Napios means not speaking or unable to speak. It implies stupidity when it's used for an adult. Because babies, if they can't speak, that's okay. They're not supposed to speak. It refers to basically the idea of moron in the spiritual realm. And the writer is saying his readers, he's warning them about the dangers of infancy. You people haven't grown up. You're still a bunch of babies. And you know what the problem with babies is? They can't make right choices. That's why God gave them parents. If parents today would just realize that, they have to make the decisions for their children. Okay? Babies can't decide between good and evil. And he's afraid that in their immature state, they're going to turn away from the faith. They're going to apostatize. And this is why Jude exhorted his readers to build themselves up in the most holy faith while praying in the Holy Spirit so they would keep themselves in the love of God and not apostatize. Now, the language in 5, 11 through 14 plainly intimates that they have gone backward. They have become dull of hearing. They need to be taught the ABCs of Christianity all over again. The cause of this retrogression is made known in the 10th chapter, part of which takes us back to a point prior to what's recorded in chapter 5. So he goes back to 10 and he talks about the beginning in chapter 10 of their Christian lives. He says, remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering. The experiences referred to here were probably soon after their conversion. And this great conflict of suffering, they took joyfully. Just like we hear on Voice of the Martyrs. Look at 1034. To me, this is one of the most convicting scriptures for me personally. Because it says, For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of of your property. Man, I wish it didn't say that. You know, I could understand if it says, and you took up your AR-15s and you fought for you to the death for your property. You know, you do. But it says they took joyfully. People are, they're literally being plundered what they own and they're joyful in it. The seizure of your property. But look what it says why they were joyful. Knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Their mind was in the right place. You take what we have here. It doesn't matter. It's okay. Boy, I wish we as American Christians could grab a hold of something like that. What we own, what we possess doesn't really matter. You know, we would fight, we'd kill for it. But how sad is that? To take a life for junk? They endured the suffering knowing they had a better possession. 
But this spiritual state would characterize these Hebrew believers in the beginning days wasn't being maintained. See, their faith was wavering. They became impatient and waiting for an unseen and future reward. It was for this reason that the writer says to them, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. They were becoming impatient. The pressures and the trials of life were getting to them. As Hebrew believers, they had trusted in Christ and all their family and all their friends were saying, oh, that he's, not, he's an imposter. You can't do that. You can't turn away from the sacrificial systems that Yahweh had put in place. And they were trying to get them to come back to the temple, back to the sacrifices, back to the Hebrew form of worship. Which they didn't understand. All simply pointed to Yeshua. That's, a, that's why we, in the, chapter, the end of chapter 5, we find them in this state. He says, concerning him, we have much to say, but it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. They're basically going back spiritually. Become dull of hearing. The word dull here is nothros, which comes from two Greek words, one meaning no, the other meaning to push. So the meaning here is no push. Does that make sense to you? Can you get the visual picture there? You're dull of hearing. There's no push there. You're a sluggard. There's no drive. It's a mental laziness. It's like, I'm not pushing on to learn, to grow, to understand. It's just like, uh, just relax in the spiritual life. You know, just drift along. There's no push. The words have become here are from Ginomai. In its present tense, it speaks of a progress completed in the past having present results. The implication is you have become. This isn't the case. They wasn't like this originally when they came to faith. They become lazy mentally. They weren't always that way. There was a time when the Hebrews had listened to the word of eagerness and they made diligent application to it. But now they're going backwards spiritually. And then in chapter six, one through three, they're given the solution to the problem of their laziness, of their infancy. He says, therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. So he's encouraging, let's go. We got to move on, fellas, here. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washing and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now, These opening words in chapter 6 are really kind of surprising. Our author has just told his readers they're not really able to assimilate solid food that he really wanted to give them. The teachings of Christ's Melchizedekian priesthood. He couldn't explain this to them because they're immature. But he decided to try to pull them forward as rapidly as he could. Come on, you got to move on to maturity. This is a solution to their problem. they got to get going again spiritually. Over and over, the writer warns the readers to hold fast, their Christian commitment. And it's precisely because he's afraid that some of his readers are going to waver. That in Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, he penned words that got to go down among the most solemn words in the Word of God. And these are verses that people run to when they want to tell you you can lose your salvation. Look what he says. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. These verses show us the alternative to progress. They're not going on. They're coming under discipline. M.R. DeHaan wrote this on these verses. He said, this is admittedly one of the most difficult and controversial passages in the entire Bible and has been the battleground of many fierce conflict among theologians and Bible students. It certainly has. Like I said, the Arminians will run here. This is the proof text. You can lose your salvation. But again, when we look at verses, we've got to keep the analogy of faith in mind. What do the whole of the scriptures teach? Now, the question we all have to ask here is whether the person who falls away like this was ever saved. Were they justified? Were they called? Were they born again? Can you taste and be a partaker of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and the powers of the age to come 
and not be justified? In other words, is this text saying that you can lose your standing as a truly saved person and be eternally lost? Or is it teaching that you can have these experiences in verse 4 and 5 and never have really been saved? Well, I think both those teachings are shocking and sobering. And which one of them is true? Neither one of them, I don't think. Those that believe it's possible for a Christian to lose their salvation and be eternally lost have over and over appealed to these verses for proof of their theory. But again, we know that Scripture most emphatically and unequivocally states that the Lord saves and keeps His children. Look at John 10, 27, 28. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish. What does the Lord give His people? Eternal life. Not 10-year, 5-year plan. If you have eternal life, how long do you think it would last? You know, I mean, this is not difficult, okay? You won't get eternal life, then lose it. If you lost it, guess what? It's not eternal. But I don't see any short-term plans in here. I don't see a 5-year plan or a 10-year. The only life the Lord gives is eternal. And they never perish. His children do not perish because He keeps them. No one, he says, can snatch them out of my father's hand. And I've heard people say, well, no one can, but you can do it yourself. I'm like, have you ever read the end of Hebrews 8? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And he goes through the list and he says, nothing created. Well, guess what? You were created. So you can't do that. If our Lord Yeshua asserted that his sheep would never perish, then certainly Hebrews 6 is not going to teach that some of them will perish. It may not always be easy to discover the perfect consistency of one scripture with another, but we need to hold fast the unerring harmony and the integrity of the truth of the Word of God. It doesn't contradict itself. We've got to hold on to the hermeneutical principle of the analogy of faith. Let's compare scripture with scripture. We always take what's more clear to help us understand what's a little complicated. Now, many of those who hold to the doctrine of eternal security tell us that what's in view here are false professors. In other words, these aren't really Christians. They're just people who pretend to be Christians. Now, okay, I understand there's people who go to church that aren't Christians. Okay, you understand that, right? People say, oh, he goes to church, must be a Christian. If you put something in a car, it won't become a garage. I mean, if you put something in a garage, it won't become a car, okay? Just because it's in a garage, all right? Just because someone goes to church doesn't mean they're a Christian. All right, so I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking, they're, they're, they would say, if someone says they're a Christian and they, if someone believes the gospel, if they don't live right, they're not really a Christian. And that's, you know, again, that's really elevating yourself in a pharisaical stance saying, I always live right, that's how I know I'm safe, alright? The view of this school that says these people are not believers at all is represented in the Schofield Reference Bible, which you won't hear me quote from too often. <clears throat> but he says this in Hebrews, he said, Hebrews 6, 4-8 through 8, presents the case of Jewish professed believers, they're not really Christians, they're professing believers, who halt short of faith in Christ after advancing to the very threshold of salvation. I'm not really sure what the threshold of salvation is. You get right up there and you just stand. You're not entering the door, but you stand at the threshold and you're looking around like, just peeking in, you know. Is that salvation any good here? I just don't even get some of this language here. Even going along with the Holy Spirit in His work of enlightenment. Whoa! The Holy Spirit enlightens them? And conviction! But then he goes, he says, it is not said that they had faith. Yeah, it didn't say it in that verse, okay? But let me ask you, do dead men advance to the threshold of salvation? They're standing there dead looking inside. Do I want to be alive or not? Is our author writing to false professors? Hebrews is written to a group of suffering persecuted Jewish believers who, because of the persecution, are tempted to forsake the Christian faith and go back to Judaism. The theme verse of Hebrews is Hebrews 10.23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now let me ask you something, believers. Who is being admonished to hold on to their profession? False Christians? 
Hold on to your false profession. Hang on to that make-believe Christianity. Is that what he's saying? No. Why would true believers be admonished to, to hold on to their profession? If they're not true, why would they do that? The writer of Hebrews is addressing Jewish believers whose loss of confidence and lack of perseverance in the Christian race, they're just starting to give up. The troubles are too many. The persecution is too great. And they've been waiting for the Lord to do something and it's not happened. So they're giving up. They're dropping out of the race. And the writer says that these people were once enlightened. The Greek word used here is photizo. It means to enlighten, to illuminate, to give light, to make, to see. The writer's other use of this verb is in 1032. And it seems really clear to point to the days of their conversion. He says in 1032, remember the former days when after being enlightened, photizo, same word, you, you were enlightened. Then he says, they were once been enlightened. This is the word hapax, which means once for all. You once for all were enlightened and have been enlightened. It is extremely questionable whether an unsaved person could said to be enlightened. There's certainly nothing in this text to suggest that unsaved people are being, being enlightened in the truth of the word of God. They also are said to have tasted of the heavenly gift. Now, this is most naturally a reference to the gift of eternal life. My favorite Lordship writer says this. This gift, however, was not received. It was not feasted on, but only tasted, sampled. It was not accepted or lived, only examined. Now, see, the problem with that is that stands in contrast to the meaning of the word tasted. That's not what the Greek word means. But people want to put their own meaning on stuff because it fits their theology. The Greek word used here for tasted is guomai. And it means to experience something to the fullest. And the, the easiest way to deal with this is, did the writer of Hebrews use this word anywhere else? Well, yeah, actually he did. He used the same word in 2.9. Look what he said there. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Yeshua, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Yeshua experienced physical and spiritual death on the cross. The word guomai here is common throughout Greek as a metaphor for experiencing. Yeshua fully experienced death. And the Hebrews fully experienced the heavenly gift. In no sense does Hebrew 2.9 imply anything less than a full and deep experience of death. Did the Lord just sample death? Did He just taste death? No. So how can you take that same word when you get to another chapter and get in 6 and say, well, here it doesn't mean sa- it means sample, but there it means, yeah, He really partook of death. To what extremes will you go to defend theories? And I don't understand why. If you're teaching the Bible, just teach it for what it says. Let go of all your pet doctrines and everything else and find out what it really says. It says they also have been partakers of the Holy Spirit. Word partakers here is metahos, which means partner, companion. They become companions with the Holy Spirit. That the writer had in mind a definite known reception of the Spirit is shown by the use of the aorist participle ginemai. They've been made partakers at a distinct point. Nicole, Roger Nicole admits, this expression, perhaps even more than the other, appears to lead support to the view that Christians are described here. See, they hate to even say that. Because the Lordship view, they they don't want to say these are Christians, because it sounds like they're losing their salvation, and they know that can't be true. So the only way to deal with this is to say these are not Christians. These Hebrews had also tasted of the good word of God. This is the same word, guomai, refers to the believer's experience of appropriating God's word. What emerges from the list is a series that traces Christian experience up to a certain point. The illumination which results in salvation makes possible partnership with the Holy Spirit under whom they fed upon the word of God and tasted the power of the age to come. And that's what he says next. They, were, they tasted the powers of the age to come. The word powers here is the word dunamos. This is a New Testament word for miracles. They, they'd seen the apostolic miracles. He talks about in 2.4. Now notice that he says the age to come. And he used the Greek word mellow here. And this is where John changed 
deviated from the text where it says, because the word mellow means about to come. It's about to come. The new covenant in its consummation was about to happen with the return of Christ in A.D. 70. And the writer is telling them, it's about to happen. It's near. It's soon. You tasted the power of the age that is about to show up. Not some thousand years later. Two thousand years later. The coming of Christ and the end of the age are connected in Scripture. And these Hebrew Christians had tasted, experienced fully the power of the new covenant age. And he said, then have fallen away. Now, as most expositors agree, the idea here refers to apostasy. The total context of the epistle supports this idea with repeated exhortation to hold on to their confession of their faith without wavering. A literal rendering of this verse might be, for it is impossible to renew to repentance those who all the things listed and have fallen away. Now, the word impossible here is from the Greek word Adunatos, and it means could not do, impossible, impotent, not possible, weak. The verb is active and not passive, so we cannot render it, it's impossible for them to be renewed. That's not what it says. It's improbable that the writer would say that God can't renew them. It's not what the writer's saying here. All right? Yahweh can do whatever he wants. The context would suggest it is impossible for us to do, or it's impossible for anyone to do. The statement's probably not absolute in regard to their repentance. It's just saying, you're not going to be able to do that. The reason for the impossibility is given in the end of verse 6. Since they again crucified themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. Those who renounce their Christian faith are without respect to their own conduct and attitude, taking a step that amounts to a fresh rejection of Christ. By renouncing Christ, they are reaffirming what Yahweh's enemies said, that He deserved to die on the cross. In this sense, they're crucifying the Son of God all over again. This is a serious step, not thought to be easily reversible. Now, if you want to find someone harder to deal with than an unsaved person, try talking to an apostate. Try talking to somebody who's been involved in Christianity, who knows everything you know, understands the Word of God, but has walked away. Try dealing with them, because they know. They know the truth. And it's hard, very hard to deal with them. Now, some people have a hard time believing that a Christian can abandon their faith. I don't know why. <laughs> I know many who have just given up and walked away. Walked away. But the view that a Christian cannot walk away from their faith is an arbitrary theological conclusion. And since it's not supported in the Bible, it really ought to be given up. Because why all these warnings to hang on, to stay fast, to be true, if you can't fall away? Kind of a lot of waste of words there. We can't fall away. Why do you keep telling us to hang on? They've renounced their faith, so what happens to them? Well, here's what I want you to understand. Here's this. Some people twist this and say, ah, oh, you're giving people a license to sin. I'm not giving anybody anything, okay? Their sin always has destruction built into it. Always. Christian, non-Christian. But here's what I want you to know for people who lose their faith. They may have lost their faith, but Christ didn't lose them. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. Amen. That should be a big amen from all of us. It's His faithfulness, okay? It's His faithfulness that's important, not ours. An apostate, listen to me, is safe from eternal judgment, but they are not safe from the chastisement. They are not safe from the discipline of God. And people, let me tell you what, the Lord can severely discipline His children when they get out of line. He can do it. Look at what He goes on in Hebrews 6 to say. He's given us an illustration here of judgment. For the ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it, and brings forth vegetation useful to those whose sake it is also tilled, receive a blessing from God. You know, and rain in the Bible is a picture of the blessing of God, and drought is a picture of His judgment. He says, but... If it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless. Close to being cursed, its end is to be burned up. Ah, oh, people see that burned up? That's hell! Well, there's no hell. So that's not what it's talking about, okay? It's not talking about hell. It's talking about discipline. It's talking about judgment. When we become believers, 
We're like a plot of ground that belongs to Yahweh. He has poured out his blessings upon us. He poured out his grace like rain from heaven. And we, we have a right, he has a right to expect in our lives fruit and usefulness and productiveness. And when we are, he blesses that and he encourages us. But the other hand, if when this rain and these blessings come upon us, we just produce briars and thorns, Yahweh rejects that kind of life. It falls under his temporal judgment. His discipline of fire and chastisement. The word here, worthless, in verse 8, is the Greek word adakimos. And adakimos means to be disapproved. The same word is translated disqualified in 1 Corinthians 9.27. You familiar with the passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul said, I buffet my body. I keep it in subjection. Basically, he said, I'm giving myself a black eye. Why? So once I preach to others, I myself would not be adakimos. Disqualified. Not, I won't be worthless, basically, he's saying. I don't want to be in that. Paul's not worried about loss of his salvation. He says, I don't want to be unfruitful and be disciplined because of that. I think the reason it's impossible for us to talk to an apostate Christian back to his former convictions is because when someone gets so far, the Lord is going to deal with them in discipline. He's going to deal with them. And that discipline is either going to bring them back or push them a lot further. But I, I told you before, I know many Christians who have walked away from the Lord. I don't know any of them that are happy, joyful, peaceful. Okay, there's discipline can be, you know, in, in Matthew 18, he talks and he gives the parable. And he says, listen, if you're not going to forgive your brother and people, that is the paramount basic bottom line of Christianity. We've been forgiven. We are to be forgiven. So if you don't forgive your brother, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to turn you over to the torturers. Man, that doesn't sound good. But he's talking to Christians. I'm going to turn you over to the torturers so you can get this thing straight in your life. And man, I think there's a lot of Christians today who have been turned over to the torturers absolutely miserable because of sin, and they just don't get it. All right, let's move on to Hebrews 10. In verses 19 to 25 of Hebrews 10, these verses could be called the divine antidote for apostasy. Before he talks about apostasy, he gives us the antidote. He says, here's what to do so this doesn't happen. Just like he did in chapter 6. He says, you need to grow up. You need to come to maturity. You need to stop being dull of hearing so you don't fall into this. Well, he does the same thing in Hebrews 10. He says, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Yeshua. Does that sound like an unbeliever? By a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to confession of our hope without wavering. Hang on, believers. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That's part of it, people. We encourage, we help one another along the path. Not forsaking our own assembling together as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. These verses are a divine prescription for spiritual victory. And they sound just like we saw in Jude 20 and 21. Build yourselves up on your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. If you do what God's called you to do, you're protecting yourself from apostasy. But suppose someone doesn't hold fast the confession of their hope. Suppose they don't draw near to God. Suppose they don't, they do forsake the assembling with other Christians. What happens? Well, verse 26 to 31 answer the question. They receive temporal judgment. Verse 26 and 27 say, For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. That doesn't sound really nice, does it? Another verse that people run to to prove you can lose. See, you. if we go on sinning willfully, we're in trouble. We're going to hell. There's fire there. Wherever there's fire, there's hell. Okay. Kenneth Weiss says this about this passage. An interesting view. This sin, the one we just read about, Hebrews 10.26, this sin could only be committed in the first century while the temple was still standing and only by an unsaved Jew or proselyte to Judaism. So no saved person could do this. This is talking about unsaved people. In this case, there can be no secondary application to present-day circumstances or individuals. 
Oh, that's cool. So when you get to those verses, they don't mean jacked us. Tear it out of the Bible. We don't need them. That's a good way to deal with them, right? They don't mean anything to us. You can't do this sin. So then it means not. That's a good way to deal with the warning passages. The warnings are for someone else. Okay. Well, great. I wonder why God was warning unsaved people. What's he warning them about? He says, for if we go on sinning willfully. Who is this warning to? I mean, we got to start by understanding he's writing. Who is this guy writing to? Dismissing Weiss' exaggerated view, we really have only two choices. He's either writing to believers or unbelievers, right? Okay, would you agree? Those are the only two choices. You got a new category? We're inventing new categories all the time in humanity. You know, we used to have male and female. Now we got new categories, okay? But in the Bible, there's not new categories, all right? The easiest way to get rid of the unpleasant message is to apply it to unbelievers. Ah, this means for unbelievers. The most common, popular, and almost universally accepted view is that this refers to unbelievers, make believers. They're pretending to be Christians. And this interpretation is in direct violation to the plain intention of the chapter. People, one of the rules of hermeneutics is context is king. So we have to look at the context. What's, this is in chapter 10. Let's back up in chapter 10. Therefore, brethren. And people say, oh, he's writing. That means Jewish brethren. Okay? That could be. But it doesn't fit here. He says, since we, who's we? The author, who's, you, see, you think the author of the Hebrews is a Christian? And the people he's writing to. Since we have confidence to enter in the holy place by a new living way which he inaugurated for us, the writer and the readers. Almost every Bible student agrees these words are addressed to believers. Note carefully what 26 says. For if we go on saying, we, who's we? The author and the readers. It's referring to the writer and his readers who are believers. By what rule of interpretation, reason, or logic can we make this refer to unsaved people? How can we say verses 19 to 25 applies to believers? Then in verse 26, he starts talking to unbelievers. And he uses the same we and us. Who is this warning to? Well, notice verse 26. After receiving the knowledge of the truth. The word knowledge here, epinosis, means a personal full knowledge. There's nothing in the New Testament usage of epinosis to encourage the idea that means mere information about truth. Its usual connotation is a genuine personal knowledge. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? You notice something in that text that kind of stands out? What would give you an indication he's talking to a believer in that text? He was sanctified. This is the same sanctification of 10.10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Yeshua the Christ. Who has been set apart? Who has been made holy? But believers. For by one offering He has perfected for all time those who have been made holy. Those who have been sanctified. The Greek word here is hagiadzo. It means to make holy, to set apart. It is used positionally in Hebrews of the holy positional holiness of believers. Which means they had eternal life. One honest Lordship writer says this. This is the most difficult phrase in the passage. It seems to indicate that he is here talking about a believer. This is a very problematic phrase. Okay, yeah, if you're a lordship guy, it is a problematic phrase. When you look in Hebrews, you discover that the verb sanctify always refers to Christians and always entails the idea of a full and complete salvation. Well, that's nice that he's honest about it. And he sees that we can't make this unbelievers. He says, for if we go on sinning, the if here is a third class condition. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. That's how we actually use if. But a lot of times in Scripture, it's a first-class condition. It means sense. Here it's third class. If we go on sinning, you might, you might not. Maybe yes, maybe no. The word willful here comes from the Greek word hakusios. And it means voluntarily, of one's own accord. It's opposed to sins that are committed inconsiderately and from ignorance or weakness. Do you understand the difference between two sins? Sometimes you sin... Just because of weakness, just because you're not thinking, just because you slip into something. Other times, you plan it. 
Not like you say, I'm going to sin next week, but you know, I'm going to do this certain thing. I know this is wrong, but I'm going to do this certain thing anyway. It's plotted and planned. It's committed with full intention. Now listen, for the deliberate planned sin, there is no more sacrifice. In the background here is an old covenant situation. He's writing to Hebrew believers. They're very familiar with the Pentateuch, with the Tanakh. So he's telling them things they know. You know under the old covenant, there's no provision for intentional sins. Numbers 15, 27 to 31. Also, if a person sins unintentionally, okay, whoops, then he shall offer a one-year-old female goat for a sin offering. The priest shall make atonement before Yahweh, and the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him, that he may be forgiven. He did it unintentionally, okay, offer sacrifice, you get forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is the native among the sons of Israel, and for the alien who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything defiantly, whether he's a native or alien, that one is blaspheming against Yahweh. That person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of Yahweh and has broken his commandments. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be upon him. All right, I think that passage is clear. He talks about unintentional sins. This is the word... Shagaya, and it means to stray, to make a mistake. The priestly sacrificial system was only for those who sinned in ignorance. The word defiantly here is the Hebrew word rum, and it means defiant or deliberate. People, there was no sacrifice for deliberate sin. Notice verse 31. He has despised the word of Yahweh. His guilt will be upon him. His guilt can't be removed by a sacrifice. He has to pay for it. Now let me show you an illustration of what he's talking about. Because he goes on in verses 32 to 36 to give you an illustration to help us understand what he means here. Now while the sons of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath day. You know, if we're not familiar with the law, we say... That's okay. He probably needed a fire, right? Nothing wrong with that. Well, those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation, and they put him in custody because it had not been declared what should be done to him. Oh, this guy's breaking the law. What do we do? How do we deal with this? All right. Then Yahweh said to Moses, the man shall surely be put to death. He doesn't say, well, tell him he's got to offer this sacrifice. He's got to bring a lamb. He's got to bring some pigeons. He's got to bring a bull. Nothing. Why? Because it's intentional sin. There's no sacrifice. The sacrifice is you pay for your sin, you die. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. Do you see the intention of there that's there? In our system, someone gets punished, you know, they're going to kill him in the electric chair, they put him in a room, and, you know, they kill him, and no one, there's a few people in there to watch. Here he says, you all get to be involved in it. Okay? I want you to see, everybody visually sees, this is what happens when you sin intentionally. They're throwing rocks until they kill them with a pile of rocks around them, and they're all involved. So they think, ah. And over and over you find throughout the Tanakh, it says, so all Israel may hear and fear. Everybody's involved. Oh, I don't, that's not a good thing to do. Don't break the law. So all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. See, gathering wood falls under the heading of work, and it was forbidden on the Sabbath. And the man knew this, and therefore it wasn't something that he did out of ignorance. What he did was willful, and so there's no sacrifice. And I think that's what the author of Hebrews is saying here. If we go on sinning willfully, defiantly, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there remains no sacrifice. Those who sin willfully can only look for punishment. You can't turn your back on Messiah, go back to Judaism and think, that's okay, there's nothing, there's no punishment there. No! You can't go back to that system and take your little lamb and sacrifice it and say, that'll remove my sins. No, there's no sacrifice for that. He says, but a terrifying experience of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. 
I think he's talking about here is judgment that would come on that system. See, here's the Hebrews are going back to Judaism, and Judaism is going to be destroyed in AD 70. The temple's going to be smashed, burned to the ground, the city's going to be destroyed. So they're going back to something that's very shortly going to be destroyed, and they're going to be part of that destruction if they go back to it. The word will here is from the Greek word mellow, it means about to. There's a fire which is about to consume the adversaries. The the writer of Hebrews wrote this probably around 65 A.D., five more years and all was going to come to an end. A.D. 70 judgment on Jerusalem. And the Christians who turned from Christianity went back to Jerusalem. And that's why in the Gospels he says, when you see these signs, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, flee to the mountains. Now, that's against everything that they believed. Jerusalem was a fortress. So when you see army coming, what do you do? You run to the fort. Yahweh said, don't go in there because I'm going to smash that place. And that's what the Hebrews were doing. They were going back to Jerusalem. They were going back to the sacrificial system. They were going back to that old life. And listen, once Yeshua came on the scene, Judaism began to die. It's no longer it. You've got to trust Yeshua. Now, he's not referring to a case of a believer being overtaken in a trespass here, like Paul speaks about in Galatians 6.1. He's not talking about that. He's not yielding, talking about yielding to fear or a, a moment of weakness in the flesh like Peter did. The writer of Hebrews is speaking of deliberate, willful, presumptuous sin. These believers had come to faith in Christ, and they were saying, no, we're denouncing Christ. We're going back to the Hebrew religion. We're going back to what we know. We're turning our back on him. He said, there's, there's no sacrifice for that, people. Just judgment. Believers, we're saved by grace. Our sin debt is paid, and it's paid in full. When Yeshua died to pay our sin debt, he paid for our past sin, our present sin, and our future sin. You know, some believers come with this crazy idea. He paid for all my past sins. That doesn't do you too much good, unless you kill yourself as soon as you get saved. All right? That's the only way you're going to make it. All right? Get saved. My sins are paid for. Boom! Oh, I just committed suicide. Now nah, I sinned. So you, I guess there's no way out of it. Unless you somehow get hit by a bus the second you trust Christ or something, die, you die the second. Because if that's all, what about my future sins? I need those taken care of. I can't do that. Somebody's got to do it. If he didn't do those, I'm in trouble. But that's why the Bible teaches over and over, we are eternally secure. How are we going to live for Christ? How are we going to honor Christ by our lives when we have this doubt in our mind if we're really a Christian? How much motivation do you have for live for Christ if you're not even sure you are a Christian? It's like, why try anyway? I'll probably not even say. But if you have the assurance of your salvation, you know that God saved you out of His great love for you, there's a motivation to honor the Lord your God with a life of holiness and purity. But if we turn from God in defiant, intentional sin, He'll deal with us temporarily in this life because of sin. Sin is very destructive. The Bible clearly teaches we reap what we sow. But in the issue of salvation, we reap what He sowed. Amen, Amen for sure. Romans 5.19 Through the obedience of the One, Yeshua the Christ, the many, all of us, are made righteous. Thank God. For the obedience of the one. Not my obedience, not your obedience. The obedience of the one. The many are made righteous. Look at 10, 28 to 29. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and and regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he has been sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. The simple thought of these verses is a quick, sure death attended the infraction under the old covenant. You think you're going to get away with deliberate sin under the new covenant? You're still going to be judged. The apostate has fragrantly cast aside every gracious witness in the ministry of the spirit. He's trampling underfoot the Son of God. This is willful. It's premeditated. And there's no sacrifice. There's judgment. For that sin. Believers, I hope you can see from this passage that God takes sin seriously. And that's the thing, when you talk about eternal security, the first thing people say is, oh, you're giving people license to sin. You got a license. If you want to sin, you can, but you will pay for it. All right? You're not going to lose your salvation. That threat is never in the scripture. 
Sin is destructive to a believer. Why would you want to live a life of misery and agony and guilt when you can live in victory by walking in faith, trusting the Lord? Sin is destructive. But we don't have to fall into the hands of judgment. We can fall at His feet in worship. And that's why in the beginning of chapter 10, He gives us those exhortations. He tells us, draw near to God. People, you do that through the Word of God, through learning what He said, through spending time in prayer. Another very important means to keep you from apostasy is to consider one another. He says, consider one another. Why? Because we're, it's a group thing, people. We're supposed to work together to help one another. If we see someone in need, we're supposed to help. We're supposed to encourage. We're supposed to come alongside and help them in the Christian life. He says, draw near, hold fast, consider one another. All important things to preventing apostasy. Because people do not think that you're above it. Anybody think they're above it. Given the right circumstances, you don't know what you would do. But I'll tell you this, if you stay in the Word of God, if you stay in prayer, and if you are in contact with believers who hold you accountable, help you to maintain your Christian life, you'll keep yourselves in the love of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, these warnings are serious because I know you take sin seriously. But help us not to brush these off by saying they're for somebody else or not for believers. Help us to realize he is confronting Christians, Lord, encouraging them to hold fast their faith in you. Father, we live in a different time with different temptations and different problems. But we still face Every day, Lord, the opportunities we have to turn away from you. Turn away morally, turn away theologically. Father, I pray that you would give us strength. And I pray you would use us in one another's lives to be an encouragement, to be a support, to be a means of grace, Lord. Father, thank you for your grace toward us. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. You know, in Ephesians, he talks about us being ministers of grace. That's a pretty incredible thought, people. But that's part of this in keeping from apostasy. We are to minister grace to one another. Any questions this morning? Questions, comments? In the last chapter where you were dealing in Romans 11, 10. Uh, Hebrews? Hebrews, yeah. I mean, are you saying that, uh, that these people who, who fall away... They had tasted and they go back to Judaism. Are you saying that they're going to be punished in the overthrow and the destruction and the misery and judgment on, on Jerusalem and the Jews, but they don't lose their eternal salvation? That's exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying they suffer. They suffer. They're going to suffer physically, all right. And, and like again, I think that's so. I think it's very true. I think it's still true today. A Christian can suffer physically, you know, from from walking, yeah, for sin, for walking away from the Lord. There's consequences to those things. Built-in consequences to sin. The Lord doesn't tell us to live holy because He doesn't want us to have any fun. It's the exact opposite. He wants us to thrive in life. But it comes from obedience. And I think when these Hebrew believers walked away from Christianity, went back to Judaism, they put themselves under judgment. And that was a terrible, terrible judgment. You know, you understand, you read Josephus of what happened to those people in there. Women were eating their own babies. All right? People were swallowing a bunch of gold and trying to escape. And as they escaped, they were catching them and they were cutting them open to get the gold out. I mean, it was a horrible time. They were starving to death in there. That's why they were eating their own children. Great tribulation. It was a great tribulation. As the Lord said, there won't be a time like this. You know, there ever has been a time like this. It would, you know, they they were under siege. And the starvation had gotten so bad that they're killing each other. And, you know, the fighting going on. And then the whole temple's burnt to the ground. And it's the end, people, of the old covenant. It's done. No more sacrifice. Jews haven't sacrificed since. They're not going to. They're not going to rebuild the temple. They're not going to do anything. It's done. The Lord said, I'm done with that. We're moving into the new covenant, the covenant I promised you through Jeremiah a while back. 
I am so glad I live in the new covenant. <laughs> Anybody else? John. But can you say that a person, if you look at a person's life and you see it messed up, or bad stuff happened to him, as you judge bad, which happened to Paul, and he said, I've learned to live this way, right. I've learned to live that way, you can't say, well, this person is under the judgment of God. Correct, and and I wouldn't say that. That's a, that's a good point, John, because it all People right. That we hear every week. Oh yeah, voice of the martyrs, and that we have to make this distinction. God disciplines; He chastens those in sin. They have a miserable existence. Now, I'm not saying if you have bad circumstances, you're messed up spiritually. Okay, here's the difference: you can have bad circumstances, trials, tribulations that God brings on His children. The difference is when you're in fellowship, look at Paul in the midst of circumstances like that. Paul, what was Paul crying? Oh, God, stop this stuff from me. I'm trying to serve you, Lord. You're making my life so miserable. He's preaching the gospel. He winds up in a dungeon, beaten in stocks, and he's praising Yahweh. Was he miserable? No. He rejoices. I can live in difficult circumstances. I can live in prosperity. It doesn't matter. As long as I'm with Christ, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So if you see somebody in really bad circumstances, you don't look and say, man, they must have sinned. That's exactly what the Jews did. And John, Lord, what did this man do that he was born blind? Who sinned? Did he or did his parents? And Yeshua said, neither did sin, but that the works of God might be made manifest in him. We can't judge a person by the circumstances they're going through. We don't know. I'll tell you what. You can judge some things by their attitude in the circumstances they're going through, though. You can definitely do that. And I'll tell you, believer, you want to make an impact on your world? Let your world fall apart and praise Yahweh in it. Praise Him in the storm. And your neighbors and the people around you are going to take notice. But most of the time, when Christians go through tribulations, they whine, they complain, they gripe, and their neighbors look at them and say, man, you're just like unsaved people. What's the big difference? How are you different than me? But when they see your you know, loved ones dying of cancer or your world's falling apart and everything's happening and you're praising God that He's in control. Man, my wife read me a story this week about this young Christian pastor whose wife was murdered in a home invasion. They broke into the house. They shot and killed her. And his testimony was absolutely incredible. I sat there and I thought, this, this man has a walk with God. You know, he's like, I'm praising God. You know, I, I'm going to miss her terribly, but the Lord, you know, she would want me to go on. I know the Lord wants me to go on. I'm going to keep on ministering. I'm gonna, and he was just praising God. I'm thinking, someone broke in your house. They shot your wife. And you're praising God. You were expecting another child. Too. Yeah, expecting a child. And he's praising God. And see, that's the thing. The horde of a Christian goes through trials and they rejoice in who? Because they know God has his hand on the trial. But for the non-Christian, or, or for the Christian who's walking away, he's out of fellowship. When discipline comes, they're not praising God in the storm. They're like, why me? How come me? Ah, da, 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 da. You know? I think we all should take a trip to the third world country and live there for a couple months. A couple months, just to get a perspective, just to get a reboot on life, to see what things are like. You know, you come back, you go up with people who spend all day long trying to get enough food to sustain life. That's all they do. They tr they're trying to sustain life. Then you come here, and all we're doing is seeing, what can we play with? What can we do? How much fun can we have? We don't even think about sustaining life. We over-sustain so badly that it's killing us, okay? We need a reboot. We really do. You know, and then we'll stop. You know, I mean, when a Christian gripes because their air conditioner broke, Go tell us some people in the third world country that your air conditioner broke. To see if they'll feel bad. See if they'll pray for you. All right? Put in your prayer request. Please pray for us Americans. My air conditioning on my car broke. It's really hot out. I mean, they'd be like, what's air conditioning? What's a car? <laughs> what are they talking about? It's just, it's sad. Our perspective is wrong. Anybody else? Uh, one from John. John from the Philippines? Yes. All right. John Paul Crandall. All right, John. That's Hebrews 10, 10, when I claim to be sanctified in Christ, they say I was wrong even though I made it clear of it being positional. Why are some Reformed churches legalistic as if they are having the believer add works? Why work for what Christ believed? I agree with you, John, but here's the problem. And this really shouldn't be so, but 
you know where the lordship belief is found is in with the reformed faith. Okay, it's the reformed people who are lordship, which you shouldn't be if you understand that Yahweh is the one who saves. Then why do you have to lamb all these works on top? And they would say, you know, works don't save you, but they're an evidence. Well, are they necessary? Well, yes. Well, then you got to add them to your salvation. All right. And we put works on people. I really think it's part of the church's way of psychological manipulation. Let's keep you in line. Okay, let's just keep you in line. If you do this, you're in trouble. If you do that, you're in trouble. All right? I mean, let's face it. The church is far from a perfect place. All right? There's a bunch of messed up people here. Okay? People tell me, I don't want to go to church. There's a bunch of hypocrites there. I always say, we got room for one more. (laughs) Come on in. You know? Really, we got room for more. Yes, I know there's the imperfect people here, but that's what we realize we're imperfect. And we want to grow. We want to learn. But we have to help and encourage one another. And yes, there's a real confusion in the church today, John, to answer your question, about sanctification. And people say, well, is it positional sanctification, which means God set you apart for himself? Or is it practical sanctification, which means you've got to live holy and righteously? God set us apart. We have sanctification positionally. Every believer is positionally sanctified. We're called to live a holy life practically. Practically. 